Hello, and welcome to Disability Exchange, a podcast produced and presented by the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, Iowa's USED, at the Center for Disabilities and Development. My name is Caitlin Owens, and my co-host today is... Mike Honig, and I have the pleasure of working with Caitlin at the University of Iowa at the Center for Disabilities and Development, our USED, or Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. We're really excited today to have Kathy or Cat Hafsey. So we'll start out, Cat, by asking you what you prefer. Are you Cat or are you Kathy today? Um, I'm always Cat. You're always Cat. All right. I have known Cat for a long time, um, primarily through her assistance with um, some health provider trainings that we do through the USED. And maybe we'll actually have a chance to get into that topic a little bit. And over the years, Kathy and I have, um, we have some friends in common. We've done some advocacy in common. So I, I knew that she would be an awesome guest for, uh, for disability exchange. And I think we'll all learn a lot from her. So Kat, welcome. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Hi, my name is Kat Hassey and I live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, after living quite a few years in Los Angeles, California. Um, I have two lovely daughters and I have one uh, grandson and um, my diagnosis may be changing, but I've grown up with the diagnosis of having cerebral palsy and it probably will change to hereditary spastic paraplegia. You know, that is, is, um, it's fascinating to me because I've always known, um, Obviously that I was blind, but up until about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I thought it was due to an optic nerve condition and then learned that it was a retinal condition and not that it really changed my function functioning at all, but just to know the cause of it. And, you know, the hundreds of people that I'd probably told it was an optic nerve issue. Um, I was wrong. So, uh, if you're comfortable doing so, Kat, tell us a little bit about how, um, this, uh, possible change in diagnosis has impacted you so far and, and how you, you think it may change just kind of the way you cope and everything going forward? I think the biggest change has been, I've always been told that CP is static, nothing will change except like the secondary um, conditions like arthritis and things like that. And HSP, as it's known, is a progressive disability. And how far it will uh, progress, I am not sure. So at some point, I was told that I could probably look forward to losing the the ability to ambulate. So that's kind of a big um, blow to me because I'm pretty fiercely independent. Oh, yeah, that is really big news. Must be difficult. And it also holds ramifications for my children if they want to have more children. And it's something to think about and to be tested for and to kind of just watch for. So I guess on the one hand, it's good that you're aware of it, but it's um, just knowing that the prognosis um, has been a challenge for you then. That is correct. And when I tell people that my diagnosis has changed, it's like after I'm um, dating myself, after 55 years of 
being told that I have CP cerebral palsy and then all of a sudden I don't. It's kind of um, interesting. So I'm still in the process of learning about HSP and um, how it works and how it doesn't work and things that I should look for and kind of keep in the back of my mind. I'd imagine in addition to just sort of taking in the news about, you know, kind of what the new diagnosis might mean, it's, you know, also it sounds like kind of just an identity shift. I mean, after having, you know, identified one way for so long, you know, it's kind of this whole new way of understanding kind of your experiences. Correct. I'm still getting used to saying I have HSP instead of um, cerebral palsy. So it's, it's interesting that my travel through this is still ongoing, but um, I think the more information I learn, the more I have, um, I will have the ability to make choices and just kind of tilt my life a little bit. Well, and knowing you, I know that you are fiercely independent and a strong advocate and we'll do everything that you can, as you already are, to learn about and then adjust to uh, your situation. Yes, I've um, already been in touch with some people that have HSP and um, the HSP Foundation. And so they're kind of helping me navigate the, the changes. Well, Kat, you mentioned that um, you have two daughters and a grandson. I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about your experience of being a parent with a disability? Not only am I a parent with a disability, I also have a daughter with a disability. And with my um, diagnosis change, I'm pretty sure that her diagnosis will also change because she was diagnosed with um, cerebral palsy when she was about a year, maybe 18 months old. And she doesn't handle change well. So it's, it's going to be a bit of a struggle. Um, as far as being a parent, my children's deliveries were fine. I definitely did not have any problem in that respect. When I was pregnant with my second daughter, I was just getting my first daughter into her early education program and her IPPs and physical therapy and occupational therapy. So that was kind of a, um, I didn't sleep very much, but, you know, we got through it and she's doing well. She's um, a university graduate and my youngest daughter hasn't had any problems so far, but with HSP, it's pretty rare for the symptoms to show up as a child and it can develop um, later in life. So hopefully it doesn't, but, you know, she's well aware that she needs to be, you know, on the lookout for uh, different things that would indicate that she might have some difficulties. If she's going to have it, she's got an awesome parent to support her. I wanted to go back a little bit to um, full disclosure to our audience. Uh, you know, I, Kat and I have shared some you know, pretty interesting experience through the health provider training initiative. And, uh, but one of the things, Kat, um, 
that I know about you is that there were some healthcare professionals along the way that even doubted or questioned, or maybe even that's too light of a phrase, uh, whether you should be a parent. Would you be comfortable talking about that and sharing with our audience? Um, sure. When I was um, early in my pregnancy with my oldest daughter, I went to the ER because I thought she was food poisoning, but she wasn't, obviously. And so they did a CBC and the lab technician came into the, the exam room and he said, uh, by the way, did you know you're pregnant? And I almost fell off the table. <laughs> um, and the first thing I thought was my mother's going to kill me. <laughs> Thank God I'm 2000 miles away. Um, but the ER doctor came in and she was so clearly agitated and she just wondered aloud um, how I could be a parent with a, the words that she said used was handicap. And then she suggested that I strongly suggested that I be admitted to the hospital that night and they would perform the abortion in the morning. Wow. And I was stunned that I was pregnant. And then it's like, you know, I'm not the only person involved here. So I need to talk to, um, her, you know, the child's father. And so it's like, I'm out of here. So I, I left and, um, 30 some year, 33 years later, my daughter is thriving and so am I, and we're doing well. Wow. What a, just, I mean, I almost don't have words to, you know, I, process that. I mean, that's such a bias laden, just like. I was thinking, is this 1987 or is this 1955? You know, it's just, I'm like, wow. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And, it, you know, it sounds like everything turned out really wonderfully, you know, but I just, um, I, you know, that's certainly not the first time I've heard, uh, you know, a story like that. And I hope, you know, I hope things have changed since 1987, but I do know, you know, that it's still, you know, a, a commonly held belief that, you know, people with, disabilities or certain disabilities, you know, are unfit to be parents. Correct. There is still that bias. Um, I had a neurologist in Los Angeles who, right from the minute she saw me in her exam room, she asked me how I got to the appointment and she just rattled off, like, did your parents bring you? Did you, you know, ride the bus, take a cab or use paratransit and I was I said no my car's in the parking lot <laughs> oh you drove and she was shocked that I was married that I had kids that I was educated and it just um she was even surprised that I cleaned my own house you know it was just like can I be done now 
we just finished up a seminar. Um, Caitlin and I were fortunate to attend where the, the whole topic was implicit bias. And it's, it's um, you have given two amazing examples um, that sadly, you know, that, that it's still among us that, that people just probably, you know, they don't even necessarily realize how insulting those remarks are and dehumanizing. You know, and it affects the quality of care that, you know, I mean, it certainly if, if a doctor of mine said something like that to me, I don't know that I would, you know, I would have a hard time trusting the recommendations they made or, you know, it really kind of disrupts the trust yeah. that you want to have with a healthcare provider. I did not see her again. I asked my primary physician to help me find another neurologist within the um, Cedars-Sinai system, but I was like, I'm not going back to her. I'm done. And I was just, it's like, oh my gosh. And that was in 2010. So that was not that long ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just, it's amazing what people think um, that we don't do or can't do. Right. Kind of that model of, you know, starting with the deficit instead of, you know, looking at a person and starting with what they do and what they, you know, mm -hmm. what their strengths are. and Very much so. And, you know, one of the things, Kat, that I have um, always admired about you is from the time that I've known some of these stories is how um, you've taken these experiences and use them to educate other people. Um, as I mentioned at the top of our podcast, I first got to know Kat through the health provider training program, which we do with the College of Medicine. Uh, it's an opportunity for individuals with disabilities and family members to talk directly with second and third year medical students on some of their experiences um, with the healthcare system in the hopes of uh, really educating them from a first person perspective. So would you care to comment on just how that experience has been for you working with the students and any particular things that have stood out um, in, in some of those interactions or even in our uh, debriefing sessions afterward. I love doing them and I'm grateful that I can um, participate and, you know, kind of help the medical students look beyond the diagnosis because with my CP diagnosis, there's such a wide variety of CP that, you know, if you've seen one person with CP, you've only seen one person with that, you know, because we're all different. And so I'd, I'd like to take that opportunity to kind of show the students, you know, how bias can be fairly detrimental and that you should go in and listen to the, the patient and, you know, really work with the patient. And I also try to instill the idea that when they're working with families that have a newly diagnosed child, that it's important to, you know, check on the family and see how they're doing and to see if they need any supports or any services that could be helpful to them. Because a lot of new parents are expecting wonderful, healthy children, and that may not be the case. And some parents have a difficult time in accepting that. And it can be really a, a tragic 
situation. I think it's cool when you remind them to do that. For those of you out there listening at the end of our sessions, we come back together and we do a a debriefing with the students after they've had a chance to visit with uh, the volunteer uh, patients. And that's one thing that Kat, you're very consistent about sharing. And it's, I always find it particularly powerful because you are, you know, you play so many different roles and, and um, you are a person with a disability and it could be very, be very easy. You know, some of us who aren't fortunate to be parents and haven't experienced that, you know, the first one I've heard when I heard parents talking about that and saying, oh my gosh, you know, we have needs too. And this is a change for us and that sort of thing. I didn't know how to take that. But when it comes from somebody who has a disability and is also a family member, that brings a whole new perspective on it. And so I'm always, I'm always moved when, um, when you share that advice. When I heard the diagnosis, I'm like, yeah, I've got this, but um, it was, a little more difficult for other family members. So I kind of had to tread lightly, but it's helpful, you know, if the the healthcare provider is kind of aware, you know, just ask the parents, how are you doing? How are you coping? You know, do you need extra supports or, you know, counseling or anything like that? Yeah, that's, an, I think, an important reminder, especially for folks who, you know, are kind of so immersed sort of in that, in the more like medical side of things, to kind of remember to take a step back and, you know, look at the, sort of the whole family system and the whole person, and, you know, and while they might not be the one to make those recommendations, they can still, kind of, you know, connect them with a social worker or somebody who can Correct. provide more support. And the parents may not even know how to access those other supports. And so with the medical team, I'm sure if they have three or four people working on it, they can find appropriate support. So speaking of supports, Kat, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we covered today was, you know, that you, you've been very open about being having your disability since birth. And uh, when Caitlin introduced us at the beginning and kicked us off, um, she talked about being Iowa's University Center for Excellence in De- Developmental Disabilities. Our program is called the USED, and we're housed in the Center for Disabilities and Development, which does a variety of other hosts, a variety of other programs beside the USED, besides the USED. Um, but once upon a time, it was a residential program. Um, it was uh, back in the day called University Hospital School. And I know from, again, from having worked with you in the past that, that you uh, lived here for a time and were educated here for a time. So it's, I just find it, I, I'm a, a person that loves history and how things um, circle around. And I just think it's fun that um, we're talking to you today from the very building and area where at one time you um, were a student. And I'm uh, wondering if you'd be up for sharing uh, a bit about your experience at what was then hospital school? Um, I was there for not for long periods of time. I think the longest I was there was for two months. And when I was three, I was there for quite a few months because I was learning how to walk. So I stayed at the hospital school. And before I went to kindergarten, I stayed there off and on. But there were definitely kids that live there, you know, 24-7. I was fortunate enough to be able to go home. 
it was an interesting time. You know, we all had disabilities, of course, you know, but it was a camaraderie kind of thing. And when you find someone else that went to hospital school, it's like, oh, yeah, do you remember this or that? Or, mm. um, I swear they are the ones who caused my sweet tooth. But um, our snacks were woefully undernutritious. <laughs> <laughs> were they at least delicious? They were okay. Okay. <laughs> in fact, I have a picture of me in the room where the entrance is right now. It was a nursing station at one time. Really? Yes. And so across the hall, there's like a big room. It was a big room at one time. And that's where I stayed at one point. And there was a long table and we were eating our snacks of uh, donut holes. (laughs) No no bananas in sight. (laughs) Their go-to was donut holes and graham crackers with frosting in the middle. Um, Yeah. It wasn't, I'm sure that would not happen today, but when I stayed there for two summers, I think for six weeks, we would go to a program at Lake McBride. We would ride our buses and got to Lake McBride. And the first summer we studied Indians. And amazingly enough, I still have my wampum bag that I made when I was in like second grade, third grade. And the second summer I stayed there, we studied the pioneers and they took us into like the abandoned cabins, which probably wasn't too safe, but um, yeah, it was, it was a fun summer. And every Saturday we would go to Sycamore mall and our parents would deposit so much money in the, an account for the weekend trips to uh, Ben Franklin. And I still remember that every week I would buy my Barbie doll a new outfit. <laughs> it was funny. So there were definitely good times. Uh, I was not a particularly adventurous eater. So that kind of got me in trouble a little bit because I wouldn't eat my vegetables and I just wouldn't eat this and that. So, you know, there were definitely um, good times. And there was a, a program for the, the people that stayed there to be an independent traveler, to be able to travel from room to room or whatever. And I talked too much, so I could never make my time ever. <laughs> so never an independent traveler. <laughs> Like, oh, talk too much. Like, they would time how long it would take you to get from point A to point B, and you yeah. just oh, stopped and talked. Well, occasionally I talked to people who, who have been um, patients there, and oh, yeah, I was an independent traveler, and it's like, shut up. <laughs> I, I could never make that. I probably would have had the same problem. <laughs> I find it a little bit ironic, though. I wonder how many others of your peers ended up in California, speaking of traveling oh. and living there. I don't know. I honestly would love to do some kind of a reunion. If I could somehow do that, that would be so cool. Yeah, that would be interesting. I'm sure, you know, CDD would be interested in 
you know, yeah. involved in that, if there was interest. I think one thing I find really interesting, and that was, you know, so interesting for me to hear about, because I just really don't actually know a lot about the history of kind of the, the hospital school. And, um, but one thing I've always thought is really interesting about our, you know, really our building is how it's, it's really, you know, and the programs within it, of course, but have really followed the path of kind of the disability rights movement, you know, um, from, you know, being a place, a residential place to, you know, morphing over time, um, you know, to then be, you know, probably doing part include, you know, part inpatient, Mm -hmm. part outpatient, you know, to kind of fully outpatient and even actively kind of working to keep people in the community and that I was surprised when I took my informal tour, especially on, well, what would have been the basement where the hearing booth is and that's mm-hmm. where PT was. I walked down the halls and I'm like, oh my gosh, they still have the pink tile. It's like that hasn't changed. But, um, you know, I walked down the halls, especially on the third floor and it's like, okay, I know what this room was, this room was. And it, it's a, it was pretty neat to do that. Well, if you're ever down here, I would love to walk through the building with you. I'm always just so curious. I'm like, where, I mean, like, where do people sleep here? <laughs> oh, nope. Right across from the nurse's station. Um, oh, right. Where you were saying that big room that it was kind of, was it sort of kind of like funk style or I guess um, or like more like patient curtain kind of thing? No curtains, just beds. Okay. Oh. Beds. Wow. And, um, and the room right next to it was, I think, three rooms where we slept. Dorms, they would be called. Sure, sure. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah, you know, I, um, I attended residential school for 11 years uh, as well. And so it, this is bringing back all kinds of, and I, I was a full-time student. I was, my parents lived uh, three hours away, so um, there wasn't a lot of choice in the matter. So, so just to clarify, you were attend, you would attend classes, but then you would also be getting therapy and so forth while you were here. Is that right? Correct. Um, I actually learned how to type in third grade at, um, during the summer at hospital school. That was one of my things. Well, I'm wondering as we're, you know, we're kind of nearing the end of our time, if there's anything we haven't asked about that you want to talk about or. No, I, I think that um, everything that was on my agenda, we, we spoke about. If you guys have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. I, I get to put you on the spot this time. Sometimes Caitlin, Caitlin does a great job of asking this question, but I get to today. <laughs> You'll so, do a great job too. Uh, so, um, and this could get at the one topic that we didn't talk about a whole lot, but Kat, if you it could leave one legacy behind, and I know you've got a lot of living yet to do, but if, you know, if we could just say, you know, let's just pretend that you're retiring. We said, Kat, what legacy would you like to leave behind? Um, what, what would that be? Hmm. Um, I would hope that people would say that I was a good advocate and that I taught others how to um, be their own self, their own best self-advocates as, 
as well. And um, if she saw an a issue, uh, she let people know. And I do that quite regularly. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I have many more years to, to be active. And I've also had a great um, mentor. So I have to give. Yes, you me. did. And yep. So, well, Kat, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Take it, for taking time out of your day. Um, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. And even though I feel like I know you pretty well, I, I learned some new things about you today. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your memories and your ideas. And Yes. Thank you so much. It was very nice getting to hear your story and meet you. Well, when I come, when I'm in the area, I'll come and show you where I blew out the electricity. <laughs> yeah, let us know. And keep us posted on the, uh, on the reunion too. <laughs> Maybe it'll be the subject of a future podcast. There we go. So thank you very much for inviting me to participate in, in this podcast. Yes, thank you. It's been awesome. Thank you for joining us today on Disability Exchange. Disability Exchange is produced by the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is housed at the Center for Disabilities and Development at the University of Iowa. Special thanks to Kyle Delvaux for the music contribution.